schools, and um, when you read through them on the book of Revelation, they disagree on just about everything. So, uh, and I encouraged you last week that usually if you find what someone listens to, or the preachers that they listen to, that is almost always what they will believe. But what you and I need to do is read both uh, opinions, different uh, authors, and try to decide what we believe on our own. And uh, these are two I was telling you that I use uh, for the book of Revelation, for pretty much every uh, different study. I have uh, six or seven different ones on Mark that I'm using. Uh, three or four that I'm using for the minor Old Testament prophets because I do want to hear why someone believes this way, why someone believes this way, to know what is uh, accurate um, because all of us will be wrong about something. Um, and as we go into chapter 8 and we begin to look at the trumpets, uh, I want to just remind you, I think one of the reasons um, why I hold to the position that I read the book of Revelation through is because of the Old Testament promises. And if you were here Sunday night, we preached on Zephaniah, and we looked at how the end of Zephaniah is very similar to the descriptions of the Millennial Kingdom and those promises that God's Word gives. But in Jeremiah chapter 30, and, and you have uh, one verse from Jeremiah chapter 30, uh, the Word of God talks about uh, the, the judgment that's coming on Israel and how God is at some point going to make all things right. And in verses um, 11, it says, For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you. Yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. And you can read that whole chapter in verses like uh, uh, 6 and 7, uh, verses 5 and 6, uh, throughout that whole chapter, and it's talking about the Lord delivering them and making all nations uh, subject to his himself. But in verse 22, we see the why God is at work in this chapter. It ends... In verse 22, it says, You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And we talked Sunday night about how if the correction of the Bible is for Israel, if the promises for, are for Israel, then you have to take both of them. You can't just say, well, they got all the bad, and we got all the good, right? And so uh, it's very important to take that all together, because in Zechariah chapter 12, uh, you have those verses there, starting in verse uh, 7. It says, The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. 
And so you begin to see these ideas that um, the future looks like. Uh, if you were to read Daniel chapter 9, I know we've referenced that some. It talks about uh, Daniel's uh, 70 weeks. And you can read through those and look at uh, verses 26 and 27. You can write these down. And it says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And to the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is discerned, determined is poured out on the desolation. And so if you are familiar with um, Daniel chapter 9, uh, you will know that that uh, event is referenced there. If you were to uh, flip over back to Jeremiah 30, you are going to see in verse 7, it calls it Jacob troubles. And in Jacob's troubles, it talks about that they shall be troubles like at any other time, but yet they shall be saved out of it. And so I think you see the heart behind why the tribulation period is unfolding. God's dealing with the Jewish people. As we look uh, on Sunday night, right, there are other positions, the, the, uh, a millennial position that believes we're in that church age now. So there's not the millennial kingdom. We know there are uh, pre-tribbers, mid-tribbers, post-tribbers. And so there's just a lot of different ways to view it. But yet I think when you read the Old Testament promises, and I gave you those Sunday night from Ezekiel, and I think there was nine different books in the Old Testament that talk about this future kingdom, the, the, the God working through the Jewish people, all of those things. Uh, I think that's why you begin to see the heart behind it. And that when you look at the book of Revelations, you have to view it as there is so much symbolism. There is so much uh, stuff that is to be interpreted literal. But if you want to do that in a, in a standard that is faithful to the word of God, you have to look at all of it and all those promises about how it builds upon itself. And so you don't want to get your theology just from one chapter in this book, but you want to study the entire uh, text to know what is God doing throughout all of it. And so that takes us to chapter 8 of God unleashing the seventh seal and the seven trumpets. Uh, any, any questions before we, before we jump in and just look at this? It's a remarkable chapter. Uh, uh, it's not an enjoyable chapter, but starting in chapter 8, if you're taking notes, uh, those answers are on the back, like I have said. We see how great is our God. How great is our God. And so in verses 1 through 5, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints extended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings and an earthquake. 
So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So if you would pray with me and we'll begin. Father, tonight we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful even when we are not. Father, tonight I just ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us understanding and clarity, Lord, as we study your word. Tonight, Lord, we just pray that it would be beneficial, that it would be honoring to you, Lord, with everything that is said and done. And Lord, we just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. And so when we look at this, I just want to talk to you just for just a moment about how does this book unfold? And so some people would say that uh, these are happening uh, chronologically, uh, right after each other. Uh, some would say all of the trumpet and bowl judgments fit into this seventh seal and, um, and that they are happening during this time called the day of the Lord. Some people say they're running concurrent. Some people say they're running one after another. Uh, but what we know is that it's going to be a terrible time to be alive uh, because the power and judgment of God. And when it starts here, it says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, I'm going to say this. I don't agree with it at all. All right. Roger and I do not agree with this. We heard someone else say it. Okay. It says, if there was silence in heaven for 30 minutes, is it possible that any women made it? <laughs> I don't agree with it. We don't agree with it. But I just I wanted you to hear that uh, there was a pastor that said one that one time, and, and we don't agree with that at all. So, <laughs> oh, come on. Of all the things I've said over the years, that's what you're going to agree with. Yeah, that's what you're going to look at me with disgust over after all these years. But... Uh, no, but what we see here is an awesome power of display and wonder in who God is. Because as God opens the seal uh, through this individual, we see here that they begin to see what is in the seal. And because of what they see, the power and the judgment and the correction of God, there is silence. Now this means something because as we've looked in chapters four, five, six, and seven, heaven is full of rejoicing and singing and multitudes of God's people and, and, and all that is going on. The angels are singing and, the, and the, it's just, a, it is an awesome experience of worship, but yet here it is and everything goes quiet. Everything is in a moment of awe and reverence <coughs> to who God is and what he is going to do. Now, we don't know exactly what goes on during this 30, uh, this half an hour of a period of time, but it, I believe it is to call attention to what is getting ready to happen, the seriousness of it, the significance of it. And I think I heard uh, John MacArthur say it like this. It is always amazing because one of the chief uh, accusations against God from people who are atheists or who are struggling with God is, why don't you just reveal yourself, right? Why are you silent? The psalmist even writes that, Lord, don't be silent. But yet what we see here is when God chooses to fully show his power and might on the world, that there is nothing that can be said because he is so amazing. And it gives us this idea of who God is and how we should worship him and how we should be in awe of him. 
Because so many times we talk about the cross and we talk about how Jesus humbled himself and how he came born lowly in a manger and, and how he uh, took on flesh and lived a perfect life. And we, we looked at his crucifixion and his beating and all that he went through as this servant. But we must never forget that God is God, that he is all powerful, that he is in control of everything, that that he is worthy to be worshipped. And so we need to be reminded of who God is in the trials and in the difficulties of life, that he is enough, that he is able. Because when it stops right there, and, and it doesn't give us any explanation other than as the seal is removed, there is silence. Now, you could probably make Old Testament references to different parts of worship and things like that, but there's no real understanding. It's just... Honestly, I believe that when you see something that shocks you, that amazes you, that is a wow moment, it says that you are left speechless. speechless. Even we get that. And so we see this amazing situation unfold. Any thoughts other than you're mad at me for my <laughs> statement? I'm not mad at you. <laughs> I, I always liked the imagery of the potter and when the atheist is telling God, well, why aren't you showing yourself? You know, it's the same thing. It's like, why are you making me this way? You know, you can't tell the potter. Mm -hmm. You know, the cup can't tell the potter how to do, how to make or how to do his craft. Mm -hmm. The same way we have no right to tell God when he needs to reveal himself or not. Absolutely. And so we, we go through this section here and we see some important things. We see the seven angels who stand before the Lord. And to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you're familiar uh, with what the Bible says, trumpets are known as uh, uh, instruments of making you aware of something. Whether it's celebration, whether it's judgment, it is proclaiming that something is coming. And so in this time, the angels were proclaiming that something is coming. Something is going to happen, And it's important because in verse 7, uh, it's going to say the first sounded. And in verse 8, the second sounded. In verse 10, the angel, third angel sounded. And in verse 12, it says the fourth angel sounded. And in chapter 9, it says the fifth angel sounded. And, uh, and on and on. So it's this idea of proclamation. That something is coming. Something is going to happen. Uh, what we know from the Bible is, and we don't know all the details of it, but the angels are definitely classified and there's definitely a structure and order to how the angels work and how they are, all of those things. If you ever want to ask a question of when were angels created, uh, some people will go to Psalms 104, uh, verses 1 through 5, and it's just talking about God creating everything, uh, how he creates the uh, garment that stretches between heaven and earth and in verse 4 there it says who makes his angel spirits his ministers a flame of fire you laid the foundation of the earth but it should not be moved forever and so we see some people would say well that's when the angels were created and, and but we don't know that for sure but what we do know is that God created them uh, for a special purpose to serve him and to uh, and so whatever the significance of that is, he is working through them. And you say, why are you spending so much time talking about angels? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Because some people have tried to say that this is Jesus 
because he is our high priest. And when you see here in verse 3 about giving the incense and who is offering it, it kind of correlates that he is our high priest, that we pray through him and him alone. We don't pray to angels or saints or anything like that. But when you read through all of the ways that Jesus is referenced in the book of Revelation, uh, you will see him called the lamb, you'll see him called the lion. Um, but in these verses, it is best to understand it as it is an angel. All right, it's not Jesus himself. And that's important just because um, if we're not careful, um, we can begin to worship uh, a group of created beings uh, that are not intended to be worshiping, right? Because if you read here, well, these angels are doing amazing things in heaven. And these angels are, are the ones accomplishing the Lord's will. Uh, sometimes we view them higher than they should be. The Bible teaches us that we are to worship nothing other than Jesus, right? Uh, we're not to worship uh, false idols. We're not to, to worship other people. We're to worship Jesus. And so when you read through this, it's best to understand that God has a purpose and a plan for the angels to accomplish. Uh, they are significant. The Bible says they're powerful. But yet, it's also important not to think that Jesus is one of the angels. He is, a, he is, he is God. He was not created. All right, he has always existed. John makes that abundantly clear. And so that's when you get into the struggle of some false religions that say he was Satan's brother or he was created. If that is what you are being taught, that is a false gospel. All right, he has always been, he will always be, he is God. And I stress that because when you start talking about angels, it is a, you can not find a shortage of movies about angels, right? Uh, about spiritual warfare, these angels, it, 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 our culture is obsessed with it, all right? But you need to be reminded of what they are, what their purposes are, and that Jesus is the object of our worship. Uh, any questions, thoughts? Maybe I'm the only one that sees angel worship as a problem in our culture. I, I would agree with that being a problem, but there's some irony now that we're concentrating on angels being angels. At the beginning of the book, we're concentrating on angels not being angels, mm -hmm. possibly being just mm -hmm. a minister. Absolutely. So, you know, when, you know, you got a little bait and switch there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we see here the incense that it should be offered for the prayers of all the saints. I think this is important to notice that the prayers of God's people matter. Uh, the prayers of God's people do not fall on deaf ears. That in this specific context, the Lord has kept them and there is a purpose behind them. And so uh, we are called to pray without ceasing. Uh, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. I think we ought to take hope in reading through some of these and in verse 4 it says of the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints extending before god from the angel's hand and uh, i think that you see this reference here and uh, in my notes i think it's very much familiarizing us with the old testament right and, and how the sacrificial system worked and and uh, how things were set up in the uh, with the brazen altar and etc and so uh, we see the same symbolism that we see um, that we see in the Old Testament, right? We know that, uh, I think we looked uh, a few weeks ago when the question was asked, uh, the Catholic Church, where did they get their belief from the incense and all of those things? And we looked at that. 
Uh, we see this very much here, and we see this very much in focus. And I think it is important because uh, when you see here in verse 5, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And some people will uh, really stop and want to hone in on this, but when God's people pray that God makes things right, um, that the enemies are punished, that you are delivered, that uh, the lies are silenced, that the Lord is going to take care of all that. Right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Uh, all of us can pray uh, when things are good. And those are usually pretty not deep prayers. All right, it's like, Lord, I pray for my kids, pray for my grandkids, pray for my business, Lord, uh, you know, pray for my temper. Um, but when it hits the fan, right, and people are, are really hurting you, or you have sit in a doctor's office and heard a diagnosis that there is no answer, right? It's in those moments when we really, I believe most of us begin to pray or we get so angry with God that we don't. And the people that we've seen who have been praying, if you're looking at the great multitude <coughs> who have been crucified or killed for their faith or whatever uh, that looks like, in the chapter 7, these are people who would have been hungry, thirsty, they would have been persecuted. And so God is like showing us here that I saw your prayers, I heard your prayers, I have not neglected you in your moment of crying out to me, and I'm going to do something about it. And that is really important. Why it even references the prayer of God's people, why it even references the prayer of God's saints. I think it is important for us to note that as believers, because if you're like me and believe that the church has been raptured out and the Jewish evangelists have been on a worldwide revival and you are going through this and you have a copy of God's word and your kids are unable to eat because of the plagues and because of the of the, the, the food shortages and all of those things. If I'm living through that and I read here in chapter 8 that the prayers of all the saints is a reminder that God has not forgotten me. That God has not abandoned me. And I think that is important in our walk with the Lord. Questions, thoughts? All right, so in verses 5 and 6, we've already looked at this, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. But I want to take you back to Joshua chapter 6. And we see something very similar in regards to trumpets and silence and shouting. If you remember in Joshua chapter 6, the story of Jericho. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. The seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram before the horns of the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. 
It shall come to pass when they make the long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. We see seven priests, we see seven trumpets, we see seven days. Uh, if you know anything about this in Joshua 6, that they weren't to say anything the first six days, they were to march silently around uh, the city, uh, looking for what God was going to do. So when we jump here to Revelation chapter 8, we see the seven angels, the seven trumpets, we see the silence of what God is going to do. And so I think it's just a, a an interesting picture of how the Lord works. And so many times we can see that pattern, just like the two altars, just like uh, the prayer of his people, that God is faithful. Questions, discussions? I always uh, find it interesting in creation, the creation story, there's an explanation for all of the other numbers except for the seven, because it goes back to the seven days of creation. Mm -hmm. And um, during the age of enlightenment, there was a time when it was when the decimal system was coming in that they tried to introduce a 10-day week, and it didn't work out. Hmm. But it was, you know, basically a, an affront to God to have a 10-day week. Hmm. I did not know that. All right, well, let's get into the let's get into the, uh, the the action here in this chapter. We see here the first trumpet, and uh, the first trumpet is we see the vegetation struck. Now, as I said, I think that this is the last part of the tribulation period and the probably five to seven year point. Uh, I think the only reference to time we have is in uh, chapter nine. If you are uh, familiar with chapter 9, it tells us um, that in verse 5, if you have your Bibles, and they were not a given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And so uh, we see this specific explanation of how God is working through this period of time. Uh, I don't see why you add five months if it's, if it's figurative, if it's not just a literal explanation. But starting in verse 1, or excuse me, verse 7, it says, The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. What we see here is hail and fire that followed. Now you can look at the Old Testament and look at places like Sodom and Gomorrah. God sent his judgment from heaven what it did to those cities. Uh, you can look in Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm. Like the flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. And so when we look through chapter 6, if you remember, uh, we looked at the seals, right? The conqueror, the conflict, the scarcity on the earth, the death, the cry of the martyrs. 
uh, all of this stuff that's going on. But now we begin to see even more in the specifics of what God is going to do. And so a third of all the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. You say, Jake, what do you think that means? I think it means what it says. A third and all. And so you begin to think about what that would mean for the earth if that kind of devastation happened. So one, if you hold to the fact that the church has been raptured out and all of the death and chaos that would have went on, all of the anger toward God with loved ones being gone, with, with all the things that would have surrounded that event, you have all of these judgments that have came in chapter 6, and now, once again, you begin to see more judgment. Now, I do want to stop just for a minute because I want to read a verse to you, um, if I can get my notes to, to cooperate with me. In Revelation chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 5 through 7. It says, And I heard the angels of the waters say, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And so what he is clarifying is why God is doing what he's doing. All right, he's doing this as judgment for what they have done, what's been going on. But I want you to see, like Dave mentioned a minute ago about the potter uh, and the individual with the clay. We see here that he is clarifying that God is righteous and true. That God's judgments are perfect in every way. And if you've lived through all of these things that have been happening, and the bold judgments are starting, there's going to be a, a hatred for who God is. Now, I believe there's going to be a great many people who are born again, who are being persecuted, who have lost their life, but it's just like this reminder right here in the middle of all this judgment that, hey, God is punishing sin. God is punishing sin. And why would that matter? Well, if you believe like I do, the 144,000 evangelists have been going around the world preaching the gospel. You have the angels that are proclaiming the gospel from, from the very sky. You're going to have the, the two witnesses that have been uh, killed and who are proclaiming the gospel. You have this constant outreach of the gospel along with this judgment. But as always, the gospel is either what brings you to Christ or it is the thing that you hate. And so we see this being explained as the reason behind what is going on. Because when you read chapters 8, 9, you're going to think, man, this is so much judgment. Uh, this is so much death. Uh, this is just so much. And it is a lot. But you have to remember the why. And so chapter 16 explains the why. Okay? The why matters. And so we see that the vegetation is uh, burned up there in verse 7. Uh, the second trumpet in verses 8 and 9. Um, if you have your notes, you'll see that, that it is the seas are struck. The oceans are struck. In this day and age, they would have probably thought, 
the Mediterranean, right? Uh, that would have been the focus of their point. Uh, uh, John is, is on an island and all of the, uh, the, we see how the gospel is spread to the Roman Empire. But it says in verses 8 and 9 that the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain. It says like a great mountain. It doesn't just say a great mountain. Burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures into the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Now like a great mountain could mean something like a volcano that has spewed something into the ocean. It could mean, as your notes say, something that has came, a meteor. We don't know. All right. But whatever happens is you say, Jake, how much do you think it affected? I believe it affected a third of the sea became blood. Now, it could be that that's because a third of the animals in the sea have died and it's their blood. It, it could be that it has affected the um, uh, ecosystem and it appears like blood. We know that's possible if you've ever seen the... Uh, red tides and the stuff in Florida. But what I want you to see here from this is an interesting thing about the ships. It seems like that would be a strange thing just to add in here. But look what I found on the internet about the number of ships in the world today. 102,899. And it lists there each type of ship. So this is significant because of the amount of life that is going to be lost, probably through some kind of a tidal wave, some kind of a, uh, a massive event from this affecting the water. Um, and so it's going to be a massive event where you be see the most of the trees are being damaged. Your, your places of growth or crops are gone. You're going to see that the places, because if you're familiar with this, if you're thinking, well, I can't grow food, I'll just go to the ocean and catch food. No, no, no. The Lord is the Lord over the land. He is land. He is the Lord over the sea. Uh, there is nowhere to escape the judgment of God. And so he begins to unfold this. Now, there are no other details other than that. But yet you begin to see the heartache that is going to come. Verses 11 and 12, the third trumpet. And we're only going to look at these four tonight. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. <clears throat> the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the water because it was bitter. And so if you're a small-minded, simple person like I am, well, I can't get my food and supplies from the ground. Well, if I can't get them from the ocean, then I guess I'll try to get them from a pond or a river or, or something that's not affected by all of that. But no, God says, no, no, that's not going to be spared either. And it's giving us this idea that there's not going to be anywhere to run, anywhere to hide, anywhere to avoid the judgment of God. But there are two opinions, and I want to give these to you because I want you to see how different they are. Two opinions that come from uh, one, MacArthur, who agrees with the commentary in this book, and the Holman, which stands here in front of you in regards to Wormwood. Why I want you to see how difficult the book of Revelation is. The Holman commentary states, Wormwood means bitterness. Wormwood is an extra bitter, but not poisonous plant with medicinal value. All right? MacArthur, talking about Wormwood, says... Now the name of the star is called Wormwood. It's an appropriate name. 
The wormwood is literally in the Greek, the word absinthos. It is a deadly liquor substance called absinthe. Now, wait a second. The other Bible commentary who is talking about what it is says it's not deadly. This guy quoting it says that it is extremely deadly. The word is used in the New Testament only in this one birth. So it is kind of hard to trace back its precise meaning. But the term wormwood is also used several times in the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew lena. It's translated, by the way, once in the King James as hemlock. It's a poison. There it is suggested that it's a poison derived from some kind of root. And so whether the uh, waters become poisonous to the point of death, whether they become poisonous to the point where you cannot partake of them, but they make you extremely sick. Think about it in Exodus chapter 7 in the plagues of Egypt in verses 14 through 21. God struck the Nile and it became undrinkable. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 15 talking about wormwood says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisonous water of gall to drink. So the idea is nothing of pleasure, right? It's either going to be poison, it's going to be death, it's going to be something revolving that. Now, could it be something entirely different? Absolutely. But what we know from what the Bible says is the waters of the earth going to be poisoned. If you know anything about life and a successful life, you need clean water. And so, questions? Uh, I don't know if this would apply to that or not, but you also have the, uh, the Israelites left Egypt. They, right before Mount Sinai, they, they hit a place called Mara that had bitter water. And bitter water. That's where they complained. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it says why the water was bitter. It, it, it was, I think it was just that way. I okay. It was, I think it was an occasion for God to test the people, whether they trusted him or not. And they, you know, they went after Moses with it. <laughs> but by going after Moses, they were going after Absolutely. God with it. So, I mean, they failed the test. And then, you know, Moses was mm-hmm. instrumental in God to make the water drinkable. Absolutely. You know, studying this revelation makes me even more glad that I'm a Christian and that I know Jesus as my Savior. And you are, as Jake's mentioned many times, a pre-tribber, which I am also. None of us Christians will have to go through any of this. It's a judgment upon the non-Christians, but there will be people that get saved during this time, but I just thank God I know Jesus through my Savior. And I think for me, as a believer, holding to a pre-tribulation view of the rapture, I think it's special for for us, but I think as I've studied it more, I think it is because when I read the Old Testament, the amount of promises directed toward the Jewish people, it is because God is going to deal with them. And if we're here, that's a problem, all right? All of the focus turns back to the Jewish people, how he's working through them, how he's doing the evangelist, all of those things. Because I think that when you read all of those Old Testament promises, and like I said, it's in book after book after book after book. I never really gave much thought. It didn't really matter, right? You know, 
But I just think it's so important to see when the overwhelming amount of evidence throughout the entire Old Testament talks about the Lord dealing with the Jewish people, that it, it's, it's, it's encouraging to me because, man, they messed it up a lot. Right? You can read through the Jewish people and what they've done and how they've done it. And, and, and Stephen says as they were stoning him, you have, you have killed the prophets. You have stoned them. Everybody God sent to you, you have persecuted. But yet, God still has a purpose and plan. I think that's encouraging to me as a Christian. When I fail God, when I struggle, when I stumble, that the Lord is long-suffering. Right? That he puts me in the palm of his hand. And, and you probably don't struggle with this because I know you're all super Christians. You're here on a Wednesday night. I, I know that. But I really let Satan deal with me in my failures. All right? What could be a little thing that I ask for forgiveness and I try to move on, uh, I, it, it bothers me. I'll tell you this story today. I was asked to do a funeral today uh, from a family I didn't know. Uh, when the funeral home called, they said, it's this time, this day, we'll get you the information. I said, okay, I don't mind doing funerals of people I don't know, but I want to be able to call them and find out who they are. And you say, well, that's really good, Jake, that you care about people. But the reason I do that is, and you're going to think I'm crazy, I try to connect the dots to see who in that family might hate me. All right? <laughs> now, you're, you're laughing, and that's the honest-to-God truth. Because, I don't know if you know this or not, but it is no fun to deal with people that hate you. Alright? I have to prepare myself mentally. I have to prepare myself spiritually. I, I just do. Maybe it's a little bit of anxiety. Maybe it's fear. Stuff, whatever it is, I struggle with it. Well, I texted the funeral home. I'll send it to you tonight. That was Monday night. Didn't get it. Tuesday, I text him again. Said, I need the name. I want to call the family. Just, just to see who it is, reach out to them. And I do care because I want to be able to speak to the person's funeral uh, that's, that's there, right? I want it to be personal. Nothing. I'll text it to you tonight. Okay, not a problem. Well, today, at 1 o'clock, I said, I can't do this anymore. So I went to the funeral home and nobody was there, all right? But thankfully, someone that's related to the funeral home was there and said, hey, it starts at 3.30, at least we'll tell you that, all right? And, uh, and you just show up, and, and, and I'll have them get a hold of you. Well, in the meantime, I found out who it was. And so I, it was actually a Brad's Henderson, a great, great aunt or something like that. So I called Brad's mom, and she's like, we're going to Ferris's. And I'm like, I'm just leaving. And she goes, we'll meet you there. And so I just went out of the parking lot and came back into the parking lot. And I got to talk to, him, to her and her mother about who this lady was and, and all that went on in that. And I was like, oh. I told the funeral home, I said, I will do any funeral that you ask. But if you don't ever tell me who it is again, I'm out. All right? Uh, because I just, I, that's something I struggle with. And so you say, well, Jake, why do you share that story? Because I think it is very, uh, it's how Satan works. He brings up our past. He brings up our failure. He brings up our mistakes. He, he tries to influence, well, you shouldn't witness to that person because remember what they saw you in. And you shouldn't witness that person because, you know, you did this. And, and I think that's how Satan works. And like I said, I know he doesn't do that to you, but I'm sure there's someone on the, the video that's watching this as big as heathen as I am, okay? And but yet when I see how the Jewish people have failed God over and over again, that verse that I had with you at the very beginning, at the very, very beginning from the book of Jeremiah, you shall be my people and I will be 
your God. It's just this reminder that he is a keeper of his promises. He is faithful to his own, even when we fail him. That's why the Bible says that he, did, he came and died for the ungodly, right? Scarcely will a man die for a righteous man, but yet Christ loves sinners. And so I just find that a great encouragement in my own life when Satan tries to convince me of my failures, my, my shortcomings, uh, when I don't always deal well with, with complaints and, and all of those things. And so I begin to think, oh, Jacob, if you were just a better leader or you hadn't got a C in church administration and, and all of, the only C I ever got in my whole life was church administration. And if you've ever seen how this church operates, you can see why. So uh, it's not my skill. It's not my gift. And so Satan convinces me, Jake, if you were a better le uh, leader or Jake, if you could hear people, you wouldn't say some of the dumb things that you say. And so Satan really can work on me. My shortcomings, my uh, infirmities. Is that infirmity? Infirmity. Whatever you know the word I'm looking for about convincing me that I, I shouldn't be doing what God's called me to do. So I just... The more I've read the book of Revelation and the more I've really studied the Old Testament promises and how many there are and how God's love for this group of people that are so ignorant, <laughs> it has given me hope. It has really encouraged me as a believer. So, and, you know, Satan is a liar. Amen. And the father yeah. lies. Absolutely. He's lying to you. Absolutely. I actually talked about that Sunday night in our text about why when you read Revelation 20, it talks about Satan will be bound uh, and how it says four times in the New Testament that Satan influenced someone, that Satan did this, that Satan did that. And so it's hard not to view that as a future time because Satan is seeking who he may devour. So we did talk about that some on Sunday night. There was, you know, one of the people that I was listening to when it comes to the end of Revelation was looking at that and more than likely Satan is not specifically worried about Dave Dystra he's got other demons and everything else mm -hmm. that maybe but you know he's not wasting his time on me more than likely but one thing with what we're looking at here with God's wrath you'll have people that will say you know the God of wrath is the Old Testament God not the New Testament this proves that wrong. Mm -hmm. But one of the other perspectives is the cross and the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. the, you know, we had our passion play this year, and we focused more on the physical punishment that Jesus went through. But in the Garden, he was asking for that cup to pass from him. Mm -hmm. And this is the cup that he was asking to pass the wrath that we, we, we didn't, you know, the people standing around the cross couldn't even see the agony that Jesus going through and it was this wrath of God that was being poured out on him for for our benefit absolutely absolutely you're exactly right all right last one and I'll be done uh, the fourth trumpet then the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened a third of the day did not shine and likewise the night and I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who were about to sound. They say it's getting ready to get even worse than it already is. That is mind blowing to me. 
unless you've read chapter nine, like, well, I've already read it, so I know. Yes, yes. And so I, again, shared two different commentaries for you on what this could mean. The first one, once again, is the Holman. It says it could be a complete eclipse or a blockage of all the heavenly bodies for eight of every 24-hour day. MacArthur states, they're desperately trying to preserve what their only hope, uh, oh, that's a, that's, I added that one in to you because it was talking about how all these people want to save the environment, want to be tree huggers, and they're worried about us destroying the earth, and, and God's going to burn it all up. So uh, they're really going to be bad at him. Um, but uh, what it says here is that we see that for the fourth trumpet blows, before they can save the earth, the stars start to go. The sun, the moon is still on the back, and the stars are reduced by a third. This, which is very interesting, by the way, is temporary. We know that because over in chapter 16, with the when the bold judgments fall, verses 8 and 9, the sun is given power to burn men with fire and to burn them with fierce heat. What happens is for this time, the sun is blocked a third and that cools down the earth. And a little while later, God just reverses that. This is an incredible thing. It is just hard to imagine somehow the Lord is going to block out one third of the sun, one third of the moon, and one third of the stars. And so whether it's a third of each day, whether it's a third total, it is going to completely disrupt how things grow, the temperature of the earth. And so you're going to have all of your places to grow food and to get free food from, right? The trees, some trees produce fruit, some don't. Uh, you're going to see your food source is going to be completely annihilated. You're going to see the ocean, how you can fish, how you can provide transport from one place to the other is going to be completely and uh, utterly corrupted. You're going to see places of fresh water, rivers, streams, the same is going to happen. And then you see here that even, even the temperature, even the ecosystems are completely messed up. And my favorite thing about all of this is this. The biggest complaint I get from fellow pastors and when I was in seminary was, Jake, how do you believe in a six-day literal creation? You see, isn't it seven? He rested on the seventh, all right? Six days, like the book of Genesis says. Jake, you believe the world is thousands of years, not millions of years? Absolutely. If Genesis says it, I believe it. Well, Jake, I just don't believe God did things like that. I don't believe the science proves of things like that. Here, when he begins to judge the world, what is what he takes control of? Creation. He says, you guys messed it up through the fall, and now I'm going to mess it up so that I can what? Make it all brand new. And that's what we see, right? Adam brought sin and death into the world. Jesus brought forgiveness and life into the world. The that's what the concern is with people is how is the world so bad? Why is there so much death? And why is there so much pain and heartache in the world? The real question is, is why is God going to make it all right? Because he's faithful. He's true. He cares about us. He loves us. And so it's this one thing that causes so much controversy and so much doubt in people's faith. And God says, if you didn't think I did it the first time, you people that hate me, that don't love me, that don't care about me, you're going to get to see me take control of creation again to show you who I am. 
and to show you the power that I have. And so, friends, if you can't believe Genesis chapters, uh, the first few chapters in Genesis, don't believe these chapters in Revelation. Because God is Lord over creation. He's Lord over all of it. And so I think it is just a beautiful picture of how he made everything perfect. Man messes it up. God is going to mess it all up to make it perfect and new. And so it starts this way. We have all of human history and that it ends this way. But I want to read this and I'll close. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 and 28. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and the stars and on the earth, distresses of nations. With perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. So he's just giving us a picture of just all that we're looking at in detail. Men's hearts failing them from fear. And the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now these would have been encouraging words for a first century Christian to hear. But I tell you, they'll be even more encouraging to hear if you're alive during this time. No matter what you believe about the millennial or the rapture and all of those things, but if all this judgment is going on and it seems hopeless. Now when these things begin to happen, look up. Lift your heads because your redemption draws near. Now I say all of that, how can you apply that to your life today? When things begin to happen, who do you look to? Who is the substance of your hope? If it's a church, the church will fail you. If it's a pastor, pastor will fail you. If it's a deacon, Sunday school teacher, they will fail you. But when everything seems to fall apart, look to him. Questions? Discussions? A couple of irons in that is that's the, that's the one that we neglect the most. The one that we need to look to the most. And the other irony you're worried about a degree and a half over 100 years of global warming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buckle up. But I think it's amazing, too, because all the things that we are seeing the ungodly heathen world get passionate about are all the things that God is going to shake them up. And when you just contradict someone on something like biblical creation, I'm in a group of, of pastors from Scotland, one of my best friends on pastor is a pastor in Scotland and he is a liberal nut all right I tell him all the time you couldn't come preach here with the things that you believe all right you opened your brain and head and your brain fell out all right but he loves the Lord and we're just really 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 far apart on a lot of things but but we pray together uh, we try to talk about things together because if you're familiar with Scotland and England and all that uh, part of the world, you know, very much uh, post-Christian, right? Big churches everywhere, but they're empty. And uh, 
but he won't even discuss a six-day creation. Won't even discuss it. He said it's not possible. He said my seminary taught me, my teachers taught me, my our denomination believes that. I'm like, I don't care. When I read Genesis, it says on this day, and then on this day, and then on this day. And he said, Jake, you can't have that discussion in an educated place. I'm like, good thing I passed her between a cemetery and a ditch. All right, I, that's all I know what to say uh, when he talks about that. But he loves the Lord. He, 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 he tries to share the gospel with man. But he gets so frustrated when I try to say things like, well, the Bible just says. I know what the Bible says. But have you ever seen, and I'll quote Fox News or MSNBC, well, one of these purple-headed liberals, right? They got more piercings on their face. They they just they, they they can't tell if they're a boy or a girl. And you tell them something they don't agree with. Have you ever seen how sometimes they'll sit in a, in the middle of a picket and just cry and scream and, and they just go nuts? Friends, it is going to be an overdrive during the tribulation period when it's God that's shaking it all up. How do we save the earth? How do we save the grass? And God's just poured out his judgment. How are we going to save the sea? How are we going to save the whales? How are we going to, how are we going to, and God's just pouring out his judgment. Well, how are we going to, how are we going to save the, the salamanders or whatever other freshwater fish in California that's got the same voting rights that you do, right? <laughs> and God's just pouring out his judgment. Can you imagine the anger and the bitterness and, and then Revelation 16 says and you have hated me and you have rejected me right and then right in the middle of, of all of that then God darkens the sky and you say man how much worse could it be well read ahead for next week because the Lord is going to unleash the very demons of hell on this earth is it during this whole time that no one will die Well, I don't. I know. I think that the only people, like I said, I think last week, the hundred forty-four thousand evangelists are protected. Yeah. I think they are given protection to take the gospel to the whole world. But I believe that the lost, uh, even saved people that are not of that hundred forty-four thousand, will be dying because if you remember what we looked at in the world in the last chapter about those who have come to heaven, it says it was a present verb, are coming. Right? So there are people that are coming into, uh, that were killed during the tribulation period the whole time because there is going to be such death and heartache. I think a lot of this is, which this is just my personal opinion, you can disagree with it all you want. Uh, I think you also have to remember that there are a lot of places where there are food stored, right? Bottles of water. And so if you see millions of people taken at the rapture, millions of people killed. I think you will see people fighting over supplies. I think you'll see them raiding Amazon warehouses. I think you will see that hoarding mentality. And I think that's why you see that if you don't have the mark and you cannot um, buy or sell, but yet the Bible also says, right, that you'll be turning on family members and friends and brothers and sisters. And, and uh, it'd be better that if you weren't even born during that time. And so I think that you're gonna see death and a Holocaust on a scale that we've never seen before. Uh, and it's the judgment of God on on well, the answer to that question here in mm -hmm. chapter 9 verse 20 it says but the rest of mankind were not killed were not killed after this is the this is the, the sixth chapter trumpet who were not killed 
So it would be after the sixth trumpet when they are leading. By these plagues, did not repent. Did not repent. They did not repent. Yes. So the question, that's an answer to three questions. So they're still dying. Yeah, they're still dying. At this time. Let me get my Bible open. Yeah, this is verse 20 of chapter 9. After the sixth trumpet. But it says here, the part that's kind of confusing to me, is it says here that they did not repent. But essentially, nobody repented. So, is there still salvation? I know there's still they're, they're still getting the gospel because you have 144,000. Yeah. We're about to meet the two the two mm -hmm. people standing in Jerusalem testifying. Yeah. So, I think you'll have difference of opinions. You'll have some people say, "Well, this is when the Lord is is going to stop." Right? That there's not going to be more people saved. That those who have been saved are going to be saved because the hardness of their heart. Uh, but yet, right after this, right, we see that the two witnesses. So the Lord is still, still having the gospel sure. throughout the entire entire book. I, I believe the word of God lasts forever, everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I believe you'll be able to find this yeah. right up until the end. But it appears to me that the people that are left, at least after the sixth trumpet, it, it appears to me there's nobody. So this is where some people will hold to a mid-tribulation view, where this is where the Lord raptures them out and everyone that's left. So the 144,000, this was their purpose for the first period. And now it's, it's just judgment. So you get in a lot of difference of opinions about that. Good find. Yeah.